Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Those of us who care about progress and civilized society, of course, are concerned whenever and wherever liberty is repressed and authoritarianism takes root. The outcome of that contest between liberty and power, however, is more consequential in some countries and in some regions than in others. And certainly that's the case of the Middle East and North Africa, that for a number of reasons is a region uh, whose development affects world politics and the policies of developed uh, countries on issues ranging from energy and security to immigration, civil liberties, and trade. And at the center of so much of the politics and the discussion of uh, development in the Muslim world is the role that Islam plays. There's no question that many of the predominantly Muslim uh, countries suffer from low levels of political, economic, and civil uh, liberties. Countries in the Middle East and North Africa, the heart of the Islamic world, suffer from authoritarian political regimes, rigid social structures, and radical religious movements that attempt to suppress human liberty in the name of God. This has led to questions about the compatibility of Islam with liberal democracy and the free society. Is there something about Islam that is inherently antagonistic to the principles of the free society? Is Islam really that different than other major religions that went through and overcame their own repressive periods with reform? The answer to those questions inform not only uh, policies in the developed and Islamic worlds, but also the level of optimism one has about the prospects of the Islamic world and its interaction with the rest of the world. So it's my pleasure today to, to be able to host a discussion with uh, two of the most informed and articulate experts on this subject uh, who will be discussing the prospects of Islamic liberalism. We'll hear first from Mustafa Akio, who I would describe as a rational optimist, and then from Shadi Hamid, who will be providing a more pessimistic view. Mustafa is <clears throat> maybe one of the most uh, well-known and reliable interpreters, at least uh, uh, for the outside world, outside of Turkey, Turkish interpreters of what's going on in Turkey and in much of the Muslim uh, world. He's a Turkish journalist and author. He has uh, been writing regular columns for Turkish publications now for several decades. And uh, since 2013, he's been a regular contributing uh, columnist for the international edition of the New York Times. He is the author of six books in Turkish and several books in English, including Islam Without Extremes, A Muslim Case for Liberty, which I highly recommend as a sort of an institutional uh, history of of Islam in the region and the twists and turns that it has taken, and it uh, provides a very good context to understanding uh, Islam, the Islamic world today. And he's the author of a book that just came out yesterday, I think it was, right? The Islamic Jesus. What was the subtitle of The Islamic Jesus? How the King of the Jews Became a Prophet of the Muslims. That's not the topic of today's discussion, but it's very interesting it's that it's connected. It's a very interesting topic. As you can see, he covers, uh, he covers issues related to how Islam influences uh, society and how it interacts with liberalism and I ideas of liberty. 
Uh, we're very pleased uh, to host him. Last year, in the middle of the summer, when there was the coup attempt, uh, Mustafa was one of the people who immediately came out uh, through uh, social media and started interpreting and providing facts to the rest of the world about what exactly was going on and providing his own points of view, which were important at the time, and he can feel free to, to discuss that during the discussion area. Needless to say, um, this was one of the turning points in, in Turkish uh, politics recently. He was a, a critic of the coup, but he's also a critic of the current regime there. We'll let him talk about this in the course of the, the panel. Please help me <coughs> welcome Mustafa. Well, thank you so much, Ian, for these very kind words. And thanks to Cato Institute for you know, hosting me in DC and organizing this forum. Uh, thanks to Shadi for you know, coming. And I was looking forward to have this discussion with him for a while. So this is the perfect time and place. And thanks to all of you for you know, uh, sparing your afternoon and coming here to be with us. Uh, I'll talk about Islam, my religion, but I want to begin by recalling an episode from the history of another religion. And I want to actually recall an important philosopher from the 18th century, 18th century Germany. His name was Moses Mendelssohn. And he was a pious Jew who was also inspired by the Enlightenment. He was especially driven to the rationalism and individualism and liberalism of the Enlightenment. And with his writings, he wanted to synthesize Judaism with the Enlightenment. He argued against coercion in the name of religion. He argued for reinterpreting the halakha. He argued that Jews could be full members of Gentile society because Jews were living in ghettoized communities, partly because of European antisemitism, partly also because of rabbinical authority and the communalist culture. So he wanted to make Jews German and Frenchmen you know, of mosaic fate. He thought one can be fully Jewish and fully modern and liberal. Not everybody, though, were convinced by these arguments. Uh, some Christians at the time thought that while Christianity is a religion of the spirit, Judaism is a religion of the law. So there's an inherent tension between Judaism and liberalism. One of those critics of Mendelssohn was a man named August Friedrich Kranz, who wrote a book against him, booklet, let's say. And he said, Judaism is an armed ecclesiastical law. It can never be compatible with liberalism. And he just wondered why Moses Mendelssohn just doesn't convert to Christianity, rather than trying to just be the, in this effort of futile effort of trying to reform Judaism. Another Judaism skeptic at the time was a name no less greater than Immanuel Kant. He said, while Christianity appeals to the individual, Judaism is communal, and it has an idea of theocracy in its very beginning. So he said, Jews can never be you know, members of free European societies unless a euthanasia of Judaism comes to happen. These were 18th century debates. And History proved them basically wrong, if you ask me. Because Moses Mendelssohn ideas, and Mendelssohn's ideas triggered a new era in Jewish thought called the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment. 
uh, and Jews gradually actually began to embrace these liberal ideas, became full members of European society. A reformed Judaism was born in the 19th century. Even Orthodox Jews reconciled themselves with certain ideas of the Haskalah. And even if there was something that really blocked Jews fully integrating into European societies, that was anti-Semitism rather than Jews' own uh, predispositions towards, let's say, an illiberal culture. And today, when you look at the Jewish world today, you see European Western Jews as actual defenders of liberalism most of the time. And a pre-Haskalah, you know, ultra-Orthodox minority in Israel sometimes can come out with, you know, illiberal stances on gays and women and so on and so forth, but they don't define. They're becoming a more marginal force within the Jewish world. Now, why I'm speaking about Judaism? I think the reason is obvious, because the 18th century discussions about Judaism are sometimes being repeated today in the 21st century about Islam. There are Moses Mendelssohn kind of Muslims who are saying that Islam can be compatible with liberal democracy. We have to do some reinterpretation for sure, but it can be. And actually, liberal values are inherent within Islam if you understand them properly. Whereas some people are saying, wait a minute, you know, Islam is by nature a political ideology rather than a religion. It is a religion of the law. So Muslims are bound to be loyal to the Sharia, and they will want to implement Sharia wherever they are, from Indonesia to Oklahoma, you know, wherever they, they want. And so therefore, I think maybe the Judaism skeptics of the time were a little bit essentialist in looking at a religion and thinking that there are the certain texts and it will never change. I think I see a kind of essentialist approach to Islam as well. And the big emphasis, of course, come from the fact that the West is defined mostly by Christian heritage. And Christianity is indeed a religion without a religious law. Whereas Islam and Judaism both have tradition of religious law, halakha and sharia. So the argument is that always the other religion is exceptional, to refer to Shadi's work. Whereas Christianity is taken as the norm. But you can actually see that religions have different traditions. And actually, Islam and Judaism has a lot of in common in that uh, perspective. So we have Moses Mendelssohn of the world, Muslim world of today. So what are these people are arguing? Just let me give you a brief overview. Uh, well, I gave the long answer in my book, Islam Without Extreme, so all the arguments are there. But to summarize, Basically, this actually began in the Muslim world in the 19th century with Ottoman liberals like Naamak Kemal or Arab reformists like Muhammad Abduh. These were Muslim thinkers who admired a lot of the liberal values in the West and then look at the Islamic world. They found many problems. And they thought that if you go back to the basics and reinterpret certain things, you can actually have a liberal interpretation of Islam. One emphasis in this trend is always go back to the Quran and be more critical of the jurisprudential schools of the Middle Ages and even some of the hadiths, the words attributed to Prophet Muhammad, because a lot of the tensions between actually uh, liberal values and Islamic jur jurisprudence, like banning apostasy, blasphemy, certain things on women, come from the hadiths more than the Quran. So there's always a Quran-focused reformist perspective. That's one thing. The other one is to historicize Islamic resources, Islamic sources, to say that the Quran was revealed by God in the seventh century, but within the context of that century. So certain injunctions reflect that context. And today, 
we can re-understand the Quran and the other Islamic sources within the 20th century, within the modern context. So that's another approach, which I think is very sound. There's always a desire to reform some of the lost schools, the rationalist Mutazila, for example. Uh, these were the Muslim thinkers who read Aristotle and reconciled it with Islam, Islamic theology, because they thought that scripture is from God, but reason is from God as well, so they should work together to find the truth, which is a different way of seeing the truth only coming from scripture, only from revelation. So that has been emphasized. My favorite liberal Islamic school of thought actually is though the murjia, an Arabic term which means the postponers, these were early Islamic thinkers who emerged at a time when different Islamic schools were killing each other, fighting, calling each other as blasphemers. They said only God has the right to decide who's a blasphemer and who's an apostate and who's a true believer. So this issue should be postponed to afterlife to be resolved by God. That's why they were called the murjia, the postponers. They made the argument that John Locke also did in his letter concerning toleration. So these, there are these kind of resources in, in Islamic tradition that can be today brought into light and used to build a liberal argument. And those arguments are there, and there are Muslims who find them persuasive. So in every Muslim society, you have these liberal Muslim movements for reform, for change, for some progress. Uh, women's issues are always a big issue. So we have a trend called Islamic feminism. I can proudly say that my wife is one of the proponents of that. <laughs> uh, and I certainly supported her on that, just make no, make no mistake. And, and Islamic feminism argues that, you know, in the beginning, Islam was a uh, religion that liberated women. However, male domination ideology interpreted the Quran and misinterpreted for centuries. Now we have to, we can go forward. So hey, here you have a trend. When it comes to economic freedom, actually, it's easy to make the liberal argument there. I mean, from the beginning, Islam has been a market-friendly religion. I mean, Prophet Muhammad was a merchant among the world's big founders of religion. He's the only businessman. And he left a legacy of you know, market and trade. Interest has always been an issue, but Muslims have found ways to either not call it interest, but do it in another way, or maybe to say that there's a difference between usury and modern banking interest. So, that's why you, know, you can have capitalism uh, that is valued and accepted by Islam. Here's one thing, though, and I think Shadi will make this point. So let me just prepare the argument for him. So some people will say, well, these, yes, we know there are Muslim liberals since the 19th century, late 19th century. But they're not very popular. You know, they're always marginal. Uh, the other guys are always winning. Like, why is that the case? Is there something essential about the religion which makes this liberalism you know, a futile effort? People sometimes ask me, like, you've been writing about this for 10 years. You know, my whole Muslim world is not like Norway still. Well, one thing is that civilizations take time to change. Uh, I mean, it takes a lot of time for Christianity to change as well. We should remember that. But the other thing is that, and I think that's particularly valid for the past two centuries of Islam. Ideas flourish not in vacuum, but they flourish in a certain context. And liberalism generally flourishes when a society feels secure, when a society feels dignified, when a society feels wealthy. That's why you know, sociologists generally connect liberalism to the rise of 
the bourgeois, the middle class, you know. And, and in, it's not an accident that it grew in more safe societies. It is also not an accident that when traditional liberal Western societies are challenged, they feel threatened, they can move away from liberalism a little bit. I think we are seeing that trend in Europe and US lately. The Islamic world in the past two centuries saw witness this effort to bring in liberalism, but also it has been the most insecure civilization on earth in the past two centuries. The, post, the past two centuries have been the most traumatic, traumatic era for Muslim societies. There came the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, which we think is always is a great disaster, but you know, there are different views. Then came Western European colonialism, Arab dictators, civil wars, the Arab-Israeli conflict. And when you look at the Muslim world of today, you see that it is always defined by a sense of insecurity, sense of being sieged, sense of being attacked, being humiliated, and all that. So that particular context and its influence, its poisonous influence, should not be forgotten while we are asking the question why liberalism hasn't made more inroads. It's not the great context to, to defend these ideas. We should, but it's not a great context. That's one thing. So maybe sometimes instead of looking at the essence of a religion, we should look at the historical context of the believers in a certain time period. Now, so therefore, what should we do? Like this is Washington, people concern, care about policy. What, what should be the policies to be followed? Well, one thing, of course, this is an internal Muslim issue. Muslims will debate on liberalism and authoritarianism, and they will move forward. But for the West, here are a few guidelines. First of all, let's try to solve the problems, the conflicts, the tensions that keep Muslim societies feeling insecure, feeling besieged, which means we need less wars, less occupations, less conflicts, less dictatorships and all that in the Middle East. So Western policy should, I think, focus towards not militancy, but rather than try to diffuse the conflict within the Muslim world and between the Muslim world and the West. On the other hand, what we should support, what others should support, what Westerners should support, would be the rise of economic development and middle classes in the Middle East. Liberalism is a middle class ideology, and that's why when you look at the Muslim world, the societies that have a market economy and a middle class and a professional uh, uh, class in society, you see liberalism more. That's why I, people when ask me, what should we do? I say, make capitalism, not war, you know, uh, borrowing a slogan from the, from the left. And finally, well, I think the smartest thing to do would be not to conclude that Islamic liberalism is a futile effort, therefore you know, killing it before it begins, but rather to give a chance. And let's not forget that even Immanuel Kant thought in the 18th century that some religions, religions of the law, are incompatible with liberalism, but history did not prove them right. Many thanks for your attention. Thanks very much. We'll now hear from Shadi Hamid, who is a senior fellow in the project on US relations with the Islamic world in the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. And he's the author of a book, Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World. Uh, he's written other, uh, another book published by Oxford University 
press called the temptation, Temptations of Power, Islamists and Illiberal Democracy in the, in the New Middle East. He uh, previously served as a director of research at the Brookings Doha Center until January 2014. And prior to being at Brookings, he was the director of research at the Project on Middle East Democracy. And he was a Hewlett Fellow, fellow at Stanford University Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. He's also a contributing writer uh, for The Atlantic. Please help me welcome Shadi Hamid. Thanks so much, uh, Ian, for the introduction. And thank you to the Cato Institute for having me. Thank you, Mustafa, for your, for your remarks. So let's see. I guess I would just start by saying that in some ways, Mustafa and I agree. We both personally believe in a more liberal, progressive, broad-minded interpretation of Islam. So uh, I was actually just uh, refreshing myself with, with your book. Um, Islam Without Extremes and, and rereading certain parts. And a lot of the time I was like, I really agree with this personally. Now, where I think we might disagree is whether our own personal views are ones that are likely to gain traction in the broader Muslim majority world. So even though I personally believe in a more liberal interpretation of Islam, I'm not sure I'm right so it's possible that in the eyes of God, I am not correct in my own personal inclinations and that um, I'm going about this the wrong way. So in some sense, I don't really feel especially confident in saying, well, in giving fatwas or saying my approach on any number of issues is the right one that other people have to believe in. So I'll just, I'll, I'll just start with that. Um, but I, I want to just... Um, one thing I, I think is worth highlighting is this question that Mustafa poses of, well, why hasn't why haven't these liberal ideas gained more traction in the Muslim world? Now, it's possible that in a hundred years or two hundred years or five hundred years, Mustafa will be proven right, and we will see this flourishing of Islamic liberalism. Anything is possible. My argument, though, would be that it's it's less likely um, and that it is not particularly probable and therefore we shouldn't hitch our wagons to that possibility or likelihood if it's, you know, if we look around ourselves and see that it's, it's most likely not going to happen anytime soon. And so one thing, you know, one thing we see is that despite the influx of liberal ideas into the Middle East in the sense that there is globalization, there is transfer of knowledge. You have millions of Arabs and, and Asians who have studied in the West and who have been exposed to liberal ideas. Um, but despite that, and despite the fact that anyone can access these ideas by reading, um, reading various publications online and so on, and even just going on Twitter, that we haven't seen a strong movement of liberalism emerge almost anywhere in the Middle East and South and Southeast Asia, with the very partial exception, perhaps, of Tunisia. Now, we might have added Turkey to that list if we were speaking 10 years ago, but we are not. 
So Turkey is no longer, unfortunately, in that list. And, and Mustafa has been someone who, is, who has said time and time again that being a liberal today in Turkey is a very lonely thing to be and, and can arouse the hatred from both sides. So we have to ask ourselves, why haven't these ideas gained more traction? So you do have liberals in the Middle East, but you don't have liberalism. Or another way of putting it is you have liberals, but a lot of them aren't actually liberals in the sense that we would talk about here as being of, of being committed to the classical liberal tradition. A lot, of, a lot of what we call liberals in the Middle East are actually non-Islamists or anti-Islamists. In other words, people who hate Islamists. And they might have every right to hate Islamists, but that by itself does not make you a liberal. And a very obvious example of this is Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, the president of Egypt. No one hates the Muslim Brotherhood more than him, yet he is anything but a classical liberal. Donald Trump also seems to hate the Muslim Brotherhood. He is not, in my view, a classical liberal. Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind. Now, I, I just want to share an interesting anecdote. So um, I'm someone, when I was younger and I was a little bit more naive, I used to think that my liberal interpretations were ones that I could convince other people to believe in. So what I used to do sometimes in, in taxis, with taxi drivers in particular, in Egypt and Jordan, because you have long traffic jams and you kind of have to talk to them, is that uh, I was like, okay, here, here is someone who you know, may be more conservative in their own interpretations of Islam. If I had, had started that conversation with them, can I convince them to maybe rethink some of their assumptions? So I would do... I would do some very complex argumentation and hermeneutical techniques and um, Quranic reinterpretation on certain issues like cutting off the hands of thieves or why, why in the Quran do females receive only one half of inheritance um, uh, co compared to men. And I, so I would try to make the argument that I think Mustafa makes in his book that we have to understand the Quran as not just, I mean, all Muslims believe that it is God's word and God's speech, but what, what Muslims might not agree on is do we take the Quran as a historical document in the sense that God was revealing this to a group of people in 7th century Arabia, and naturally people had different views around women's empowerment and corporal punishment, so things like cutting off the hands of thieves or even slavery, which is a complex discussion, those things were accepted in that time and space. Um, and they shouldn't be seen as things that will be applicable for all times, and that Muslims should reinterpret scripture in light of their own modern context. But when you actually make that case to people, it's not the easiest argument to make, because you have to go into a lot of contextual issues and I think for a lot of Muslims, they just want to have, they want religion to be straightforward. They want to just pray five times a day, fast. They don't want to take the risk of believing in a progressive interpretation because if there's a lot at stake. Heaven and hell is essentially what's at stake if you believe in the afterlife. And if you, if you go against the consensus of the scholars or what most mainstream scholars say about these things, 
whether it's gender equality, gay rights, or reinterpreting the criminal punishments, you don't want to be in a position where on the day of judgment, God asks you, well, hey, you kind of went the wrong way on this. You might be in some trouble here. Why take the risk? Go with the orthodox conservative interpretation, which the vast majority of your co-religionists believe in. So I think that's one challenge that even if we think, me and Mustafa think, that these arguments are compelling, why should other people necessarily sign on? Now, um, there's two things I'll just mention quickly here. So one argument I make it in my new book, which is called Islamic Exceptionalism, because I am arguing that Islam is in fact exceptional in how it relates to law, politics, and governance. And there's two things, two factors just very quickly here. One is that Prophet Muhammad was not quite like Jesus, and Mustafa has written a book about Jesus, so maybe we can talk about this. But, but Prophet Muhammad was not just a prophet, a theologian, or a man of God, he was also a politician. And not just a politician, but he was a head of state, and also a state builder. And this is obviously major implications for how Islam develops, because regardless of whether you believe the Quran is divine, the Quran has to have something to say about public law and governance, because that's what Muhammad and the early Muslims were dealing with, especially in Medina. They had to build a new community, and law is part of that. So it would be kind of weird if the Quran was silent on those issues. On the other hand, Jesus was a dissident against a reigning state. Yes, he was political in a sense, but he wasn't someone who was ever in a position to govern. So the New Testament, unsurprisingly, has very little to say about public law and governance. So in this sense, Islam and Christianity, I think, are meant to do different things. Um, and we know that, um, so what does law do? Law, at least in part, is about exposing and punishing sin. But yet when Jesus died on the cross, he released Christians from the burdens of sin. And for example, Paul in Galatians says, um, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So this kind of anti-legal approach, if you will, is quite explicit in the New Testament. On the other hand, in Islam, at least as the vast majority of scholars have understood it in the better part of 14 centuries, is that salvation is impossible without law. So faith can be expressed in a number of different ways, but one way of expressing faith is by observing the law, by praying five times a day, by refraining from alcohol consumption, by the whole list of things that would fall under the very broad and vast rubric of what we call Sharia. So anyway, that, that's something to keep in mind. <clears throat> Now, as I just close up here, I want to make a broader point about illiberalism. So I also come at this from a different perspective maybe than Mustafa because I have a darker view of human nature, and increasingly so in light of the events of, I guess, the last three months, but also the last six years. I mean, as someone who saw the rise and fall of the Arab Spring. And I think one thing that I'm thinking about more and more is this question of, are, are, do we as humans default to liberalism or is our default position illiberalism? And I think there's more and more compelling evidence that liberalism, liberalism is not the most natural 
think for us because throughout the world we see liberalism on decline, under attack, and even in the very places where norms and institutions are very powerful in terms of promoting liberal ideas and, the, and aspects of the classical liberal tradition, even in those established democracies, we see very strong illiberal movements emerging. And that's from whether India, Philippines, Israel, Europe, Poland, Hungary, France, Britain, pretty much everywhere. So that, that I think forces us to rethink, uh, rethink some of those, some of maybe our assumptions about human nature and what we incline towards in our natural state. Now, if, if we tend towards illiberal ideas, especially where norms and institutions aren't very strong, then it would only be natural that the more illiberal elements of Islam will speak to that natural desire to have sh more sharply defined identities, to move towards more aggressive forms of populism, to impose our will on others and to say, well, we you know, we believe that everyone else shouldn't drink alcohol or there should be gender segregation at different levels of schooling or that clerics should play a role in crafting national legislation, so on and so forth. And there's actually an interesting, an interesting um, quote from Fukuyama, not from the end of history, which probably all of you have read, but from his other one of his other books, which I think is probably his best work, which is The Origins of Political Order. And he, talks, he pretty much talks about liberalism not being natural. And he says this about the evolution of, of European and Western civilization. He says that individualism seems today like a solid core of our economic and political behavior is only because we have developed institutions that override our more naturally communal instincts. So that's one interpretation there that um, we, need these, we need these external institutions to force us to be liberal, essentially. And finally, the last thing, the last question I'll pose to Mustafa and, and all of you is maybe, maybe about the starting assumptions of this conversation. Why does Islam have to be liberalized in the first place? Why does there have to be an Islamic liberalism? What if the majority of Muslims in any given society or country say, we don't necessarily want to be liberal and we want to be able to express our illiberalism through the democratic process peacefully within a legal framework, within a constitutional framework, whatever it is in that particular society. I'm just wondering why, we, why this needs to happen and I have an idea what you'll say, Mustafa, but I'll, I'm curious and curious what anyone else has to say about this. But I think it, I think um, there is, there should be different possibilities and paths for different societies and cultures to follow. And we can't force people to be liberal if they, in fact, don't want to be. Thanks. Thanks very much. Mustafa, would you like to respond to some of the? Sure, a few things. <clears throat> Should I sit here or be there? Oh, yes, there. okay. Thank you. Well, there are things that we agree and disagree, Shadi. And I actually agree on human nature. I'm not a big fan of human nature in general. I mean, there's Mother Teresa to Hitler. There's a big spectrum, obviously. But actually, we need liberalism precisely to be saved from the sins of human nature, such as tyranny, 
hate, aggression, and so on and so forth. But you made a lot of points, but a few things I just would like to add. I mean, yes, Islamic liberalism doesn't convince taxi drivers in Egypt. I, I, I can see that. Or, you know, like common man on the street, which says, why do I need this kind of thing? Like, well, I have a traditional way of life I'm living. Indeed, liberalism flourishes when people realize that they need it. And that need comes out of generally bitter experiences with illiberalism. One example, do Muslims need a secular state? Now, if you ask this question to many people from Egypt to Indonesia, they will say, what is that? I mean, our state, we are Muslim, state should be Muslim. And secular state was introduced to the Muslim world by secular autocrats, not, not as a liberal ideal, but as a kind of authoritarian modernization project. But now, in Turkey, I am reading Islamic pundits looking at ISIS, looking at Shia Sunni killing each other in Iraq and Syria, looking at Erdoganists and Gulenists, two Islamist actors killing each other in Turkey and you know, hating each other. They say, maybe that is why secularism is needed. All this internal battle within Islam is over power, and maybe because we need the secular state for that. That's an interesting discovery. Well, Europeans did the same thing. They had the same discovery. So, yes, people come to liberalism because it's not fashionable. They realize that some of these ideas are actually good not to kill each other and to be having a civilized life. And I think we are having that process right now uh, in, in, in certain parts of the Middle East. You compare Prophet Muhammad to Jesus, you're absolutely right. And I make that comparison too. Islam is exceptional compared to Christianity in the sense that it has a notion of law and it has a prophet who's also state builder and a military leader. Immanuel Kant made the exact same argument comparing Judaism and Christianity. He said Moses and Joshua are state builders and military leaders when you combine them together. The word theocracy was actually developed, invented to describe the government governorship under Moses and Joshua. So Immanuel Kant said Jews, Judaism will be always prone to theocracy. It didn't happen that way. Jews, you know, reinterpreted that tradition. So the fact that Prophet Muhammad is a state leader and a military leader is interpreted by Muslim liberals today in different ways. One is to say, well, actually he founded a pluralistic state, the Medina of Constitution. Jews and Muslims shared the same state. That was the original idea. That's one liberal way of looking at that. The other way is to say, well, Prophet Muhammad was a leader, but who's Prophet Muhammad today? He doesn't exist. Nobody takes revelation. Nobody has an authority. So Muslims are on their own. They can have their states in, in whatever format they have. So the counter-arguments of all of these positions, Islamist positions, exist. The question is, will they be persuasive? And that's what we are, of course, discussing. And yes, I'm a bit more optimistic about that. Not because I val think human nature is necessarily better, but I think we are going through some of the painful lessons that Europe went through before arriving at what we call liberalism. Can I pose a very yeah. quick, um, so I think, so if, it depends what the goal is. So if the goal is plur oh, yeah. Yeah. pluralism and if the goal is kind of the peaceful resolution of disputes and people being generally tolerant, then you could still have that under an Islamic system because if we talk about the Abbasid Caliphate or Andalusia a thousand years ago, these were considered to be um, quite, for, the, for their times at least, quite pluralistic and open and, 
and very welcoming to philosophy and, and kind of intellectual development. So you can still have that under the rubric of a caliphate where Islamic law is considered the supreme law of the land. So if, if pluralism is the goal, I think there are other ways of, of getting there besides a requirement of liberalism, right? And I think we can talk about Tunisia where you have an Islamist party in power that, has been, that, that was in power and they were willing to work with secular parties and to have a more compromising conciliatory approach. And just a second thing on Judaism, well, first of all, um, the number of Jews is a, is a lot smaller. So um, I think it just has different national security implications and also implications when it comes to mass immigration in places like, like Europe. But since the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD, Jews were never in a position to govern as a majority. So we see the rabbinical tradition evolving in a certain way over, over 2,000 years, really, where Jews are more focused on communal life, on personal life, and living as minorities under the rule of others, where Islam generally did not go through that experience because there's a lot more Muslims and the vast majority of Muslims live in places where they are the majority religion. <laughs> we don't want to do this forever, but <laughs> it's okay. It won't be forever. Go of on. course. I mean, the, the Muslim population is 100 times more than the Jewish population in the world, and you have many Muslim states. You never had a Jewish state from Second Temple to State of Israel. Yet still, it need, it took a Haskalah, a Jewish enlightenment for Jews to fully embrace the modern liberal ideas. And the rabbis resisted that, and the anti-Semites resisted that, So, because they thought Jews can never be fully European. So I think, despite the fact that you know, they didn't have a state, Jews still thought themselves as a community of, with legal, legal autonomy of themselves is an important matter. And the struggle in Jewish Haskalah was exactly some of the struggles we are having today. Uh, why people, okay, why should we expect Muslims to be liberals? I agree with you that the state can be defined as Islamic if it is guaranteeing all the human rights. And in Tunisia, we are seeing an evolution towards that. I'm sympathetic to that. When I'm saying secularism, I'm not dogmatic on that. The question is, do you protect human rights? Why should we force Muslim societies to be liberal if they're happy like that? Well, you are generally happy with an illiberal system if you're in the majority. If that system is defined by your values, then that's okay, who cares? But then there are minorities in those societies. There are atheists who can be killed for blasphemy. There are Jews and Christians who are not sure whether they are equal citizens or not. There are women who may be demanding equal rights but who don't get them. So there are tensions in those societies because the majoritarian tendency can be towards violating their rights. And when the rights of individuals clash with a majoritarian attitude, I would be with the rights of the individuals. If he, if he didn't do that, we would still have slavery in the South, maybe. Like, there would be some people who would be saying that this is the majoritarian view. I mean, I'm not going to get into U.S. history, but we have cases in history where the majority's illiberal tendency has been pushed forward for the sake of human rights, and I would side with the human rights argument there. I have a quick question. Ashadi. Your description of the caliphate sounded like uh, Islamic liberalism as opposed to pluralism. Does that mean that you think that uh, is the Muslim world can be liberal? 
So it would be considered liberal according to the standards of a thousand years ago, but if you replicated the Abbasid Caliphate today, it would not be considered liberal because things like democracy, um, popular sovereignty, mass political participation, um, full equality between citizens, those things didn't, e didn't exist as we understand them today in the golden age of the Abbasid Caliphate. So even though Christians and Jews, it was the best place to be a Christian or Jewish minority under the Abbasid Caliphate, they were still not 100% equal citizens. There were still certain positions they couldn't, they couldn't have in terms of the government bureaucracy, and of course they couldn't be the caliph, obviously. And it's still the case that the legal system was very much oriented around Islamic law, and obviously Jews and Christians could have their own um, legal courts, and that, that was something that was a feature of the Ottoman <laughs> Caliphate. But would we really be comfortable with that today where we say, oh, the Muslim majority can have their Sharia courts, but then the Jewish minority would be governed by its own system and, and individual Jews would be accountable to their own local rabbi. That goes against the whole idea of the modern nation state and modern citizenship. So part of this is also about the fact that now we look at politics in terms of nation states where your primary loyalty is to the nation, where in the pre-modern era, if you were living under a caliphate, your primary allegiance was to your religious community or to the caliph. One sentence to add to that, that's absolutely true. But of course, the Ottoman Empire, the seat of the caliphate, made Jews and Christians equal citizens of the empire in the mid-19th century. So there was a big evolution in that Islamic tradition as well. Seems like in some ways the, the, uh, the, the caliphates uh, did, were more liberal than, than, some of the, than much of the Islamic world is today. Yeah, but, but let's say... But let's, I take your point. Yeah, yeah, but just very quickly, I mean, what, let, let's say that someone wanted to start a caliphate um, in some part of the Middle East, but they were like, we want to start a progressive right. caliphate, not a... Not a Compared kind of, to ISIS, everybody's liberal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, but I, I have a lot of trouble seeing any, like, uh, the West or the U.S. being comfortable with even a progressive caliphate that would transcend borders. That would still probably be pretty controversial. We have time for questions. If you have a question, please raise your hand. Uh, wait for the microphone when I call on you, and then identify yourself and your affiliation, please. We can s start here in, in front. My name is Mohinder Gulati. Uh, liberal Islam. I see two binding constraints which are inherent contradiction in the, in the concept of liberal Islam. And let me point out those two. One, that Quran being the word of God and therefore immutable. So one factor is the immutability of Quran. The second factor is that the laws of the state or laws of governance are enshrined in Quran and therefore by definition are immutable. And whatever liberalism you can talk about is the liberalism as was defined in the seventh century when the word of God was revealed. That would also mean that liberalism also is immutable, anything beyond what was included in Quran. Therefore, if it has evolved, then that is not liberalism. Now, let's get to, the, let's get to the question. I forgot to say I'm quick to questions. Question. <laughs> I'm coming to the question because otherwise I can just ask one phrase and that means nothing. 
got to be illiberal. That's what we're, <laughs> that's what we're shooting for. Yeah. The question is, in Quran, there is this punishment for apostasy. And that's one of the dimensions of liberalism, which says it is not only the, anyone who converts out of Islam is wajibay qatl, which means that can be killed. Not only that state can kill, but even it is also the enjoined duty of every Muslim to kill that person who converts out of Islam. And imagine if that was the process also in other religions, we'll have a lot of dead people and we'll also have a lot of dead liberal liberalism. So if that is the case, then how can you have liberal Islam? Great question. Can I answer? Yes. Thanks to you, sir. But actually, there is n nothing in the Quran about punishing apostasy. There is a punishment for apostasy in Islamic jurisprudence, which comes from the hadiths and the interpretation of hadiths by medieval scholars. But in the text of the Quran, there is zero. There is nothing about punishing apostates. Uh, I've written a whole book about this. I have a chapter titled Freedom from Islam. Uh, there I explained, and you can, if you have Quranic experts, you can ask. There is nothing in the Quran about punishing apostates or blasphemers. But Islamic law has that because Islamic law includes Quran plus the Hadiths plus the Ijma of scholars, which is a whole body of literature. And that's why I say reformers go back to the Quran generally to deal with these issues, kind of blasphemy and apostasy, because the Quran brings no punishment for apostasy at all. The Quran says God will punish apostates in hell, but that is not on this earth. And I can 100% guarantee you that there is nothing in the Quran which says apostates should be punished. And that's the big argument people like me are making against the people who think apostates should be executed. Uh, immutable. Well, the text of the Quran is immutable in the sense that every Muslim agrees that this is the text of the Quran, all letters, and it's written this way. We all believe it. But how do we understand is a very complicated question. And yes, you have different answers. One point that Shadi pointed out, the Quran speaks of slavery. Uh, it says, treat your slaves nicely. It says, give them your food, be compassionate to slaves. It encourages manumission, freeing slaves. But the institution is not officially abolished in the Quran. So does this mean that slavery is an Islamic institution? ISIS thinks so, and they have reestablished slavery in the middle of Iraq by enslaving Yazidis. They're women, and, and you know, they, they use as sex slaves. Whereas the overwhelming of the scholars, after a lot of struggle, have come to the position that that was historical. It was there, and the Quran regulated that, but the, dis but the goal was to you know, free everybody. And that is basically the universal Muslim opinion. It didn't, it didn't come easily. The Ottomans banned slave trade in the 19th century. There was a Wahhabi revolt against the Ottoman Empire precisely on that issue. But Muslims have been able to move on with the issue of slavery, saying that even if it is there in the Quran, it is historical. So the question is, what are the aspects of the Quran that we see as historical? That what, what are the aspects of the Quran we see as internally binding? And here you have a whole spectrum uh, within that. I would say, for example, the Quran has, doesn't have punishments for apostasy, but it has punishments for theft, murder, uh, false accusation of adultery and adultery, all corporal punishments. So does this mean that Islam fancies corporal punishments? I would say, well, not necessarily. In 7th century Arabia, there were no prisons. Uh, every punishment was by definition corporal, like in, in British common law. I mean, in, in 7th century Arabia, under a tent, you couldn't imprison people. So that's the context. So that is one way of looking into the Quran by appreciating that the Quran is the word of God.
if that's an answer to your question. We'll take if you find question. it worse, tell me. I'm sure there is not. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take another question over there on the right. Uh, my name is Charles Butterworth, emeritus professor from the University of Maryland. And I'd like to um, ask each of you if you would reply to a thought about Ali Abdurazek, who published his book just after the um, end of the caliphate and insisted that Muhammad was not a politician, but was a founder of a religion. Uh, that is a very powerful argument, which both of you, especially you, uh, Mr. Ahmed, seem to have neglected. So I'd like, I wonder what you can say about this. Okay, I mean, I mean, as a factual matter, I mean, Prophet Muhammad was a politician. I mean, there's nothing you can, I mean, I, I can't recall the exact parts of Ali Abdurazik's book that, um, but I mean, he was the head of a proto-state in Medina, so that means he was a politician, and he he organized this early community of Muslims politically. Now we can debate how pluralistic that early community in Medina was, but those are all political debates. So I think really, for anyone who says that Muhammad wasn't a, a politician, I think that's apologetics, and I, I think it's a lot of there's a lot of people who want to soft pedal what Muhammad was or what he believed in to make him seem more appealing to Western audiences. Some of my Muslim friends do this. I don't think it's very productive to pretend that Islam is something it's not. And if you talk to a lot of Muslims, they like the fact that there, a lot of them, some of them, many of them, whatever, are, some of them are, they like the fact that Islam has a political element that makes it more resonant and makes it in their view more powerful in the modern era, and they see other religions declining in influence, and they say, well, Islam is the last religion that is in this sense kind of uncompromising. It's holding on to its core. And I think that's one of the most appealing aspects of Islam, not necessarily to me, but to many Muslims. And if you lost that aspect of it, then the question is, if you dilute Islam endlessly, then what do you really have that rallies people, that inspires them, that motivates them? Can I say one thing on that? Yeah. Thank you, Charles, for that reminder. Ali Abdul Razak wrote that, and he got into trouble a little bit in Egypt after that. That's a fact. But he was right. I would add that a Turkish scholar made the exact same argument, Said Bey, in the Turkish parliament he brought the argument that the caliphate is not a religious, but a historical and political institution. In other words, when Prophet Muhammad passed away, there was this institution called caliphate. Was it an integral part of Islam? Was it necessity? He said, no, that's the experience of the Muslim community. They decided to do so. It was a human decision. And the abolishing of the caliphate, therefore, he said, is uh, acceptable from an Islamic point of view. He made this argument in the Turkish parliament in 1924, and that helped the abolition of the caliphate in the Turkish parliament in 1924. So even the all-secularist Ataturk, while abolishing the caliphate for political reasons too, he actually relied on an Islamic interpretation, which was accepted by some prominent Islamic, you know, ulema, let's say, scholars of his time. Today, some in Turkey think that we should revive the caliphate of sorts and we should have a great leader who plays a historical role. I don't agree with them, 
But we, we had people, even as early as the 20th century, both in Egypt and Turkey, who argued that they didn't deny Prophet Muhammad happened to be a political leader, but they, did, they said this is not integral to his mission. It's just coincidental. Historically, it happened that way. And the caliphate is just a legacy, but it's not, nece- it's not a necessity of the faith itself. So Said Bey in Turkish parliament made the same argument. Thank you. I will take a question back there. Uh, Andre. Thank you. Uh, the question is uh, to both uh, speakers. If uh, you can try to take a really long-term approach to the issues you're discussing, and coming back, let's say, 10 centuries from today, in 10th, 11th centuries uh, AD, Islamic countries looks like were much more economically prosperous than Christian than time, had much more scientific advancement, uh, had very substantial uh, achievements in law, literature, culture, whatever you take. At least at the same level, maybe more than Christian. Today is a very different situation. Some people could claim that uh, liberalism uh, 10 centuries ago in Islamic countries was at least on a par with Christian countries and maybe even more. What happened over these 10 centuries? Why this comparison has been reversed in a such a dramatic way? Well, this is a million dollar question, as they <laughs> say, right? I mean, this is a question that has been discussed by scholars for decades and decades. I have my own answers in my book, Islam Without Extremes, but it's a fact that a thousand years ago, the Islamic civilization was, compared to Christendom, was more open, more diverse, more free, more prosperous, more creative discoveries, scientific discoveries, (coughs) philosophy and all that was more advanced. That's a fact. The greatest libraries were in Baghdad and Cordoba, not Paris or London. That's a fact. How it changed today Huge question. I think a lot of things related with the economy, the decline of the Mediterranean trade, Silk Road, Middle Eastern economies, and the rise of capitalism and modernity in Europe, and Muslims uh, basically stagnating in whatever they have, not being open to novelty. So there is a stagnation of the Islamic world going on from the 13th century. Explain a lot of factors, Mongol catastrophe, crusades, and also... So it's a huge historical debate. But my lesson from what you pointed out is to say, well, there was a time that we Muslims could be proud of being the most open, tolerant, diverse, creative, sophisticated civilization on earth. So the the not so bright picture we have today in the Muslim world today, and I'll admit it's not bright at all, uh, is something maybe not coming from that the core of the faith, but from historical circumstances. And therefore, we can change the historical circumstances. As Shadi said, maybe 200 years later, you know, it will, it will take place. But it's an effort worth trying rather than to say Islam of today, rather than extrapolating from the Islamic of world today, which I think Shadi does a little bit, to Islam in general, we should try to understand the different historical dynamics. So um, on this question, you know, it's interesting because any of us who grew up in the Muslim community even if it's not very direct, we kind of absorb this sense, and I, 
my community was in Pennsylvania, so not, not Turkey, but this idea that, hey, um, we hear about all these stories about how we used to be awesome a thousand years ago, all the past glories, the golden age, the Abbasid Caliphate, the philosophy, the fact that people would come to Baghdad to study at the seat of the great scholars. So we hear all that growing up in Sunday school from our parents, whatever, but then we look around ourselves and see, hey, we kind of suck now. So I think a big challenge, and there's a, there's a cognitive dissonance where Muslim, and it's part of the dinner table. I, I can't tell you how many conversations at dinner or whatever where this comes up naturally. How did this happen to us? Because anyone can see... Or um, who did this to us? That's did, the more conspiratorial question. And this, but I, I think it's... I, I wouldn't tie it very closely to some... To, to Islam, if you, if you look at the last hundred years and just focusing on, on the modern period, the era of nation states, the biggest problem in my view that we have in the Middle East is secular authoritarian regimes. It's not theocracy. It's not clerical despotism. I mean, if you look at the most brutal repressive regimes, these are not Islamist regimes. And if we look at the fact that democracy has not flourished in the Middle East, it's pretty much a legacy of secular and socialist authoritarian regimes. Gamal Abdel Nasser, from 1952 onwards, he was the one who set the gold standard for this kind of authoritarianism. So I think we have to be very careful about assuming that this very tragic state that we find ourselves in is tied to religion, when I think it's tied more to the failure of political institutions. So for me, my bottom line has always been the focus, the priority has to be democracy rather than liberalism. And we let Arabs and Asians and other Muslims decide what course they want to take as long as they do so through the democratic process. And, you know, let's see what happens. What are the outcomes then? I agree there. <laughs> I mean, especially on the fact that secular authoritarianism has a lot a lot of sins in the yeah. Middle East, yeah. Okay, we'll take a question in the back. Uh, uh, hi, thank you uh, both for the presentation. So my name is Hussein Bayoumi. Uh, my question is, where do you see the role of the material on affecting uh, the ideological direction of Islam? Uh, so for example, because like, Growing up in Egypt, I could see how gender or relationship to the economy or relationship to power in general affects the different people's opinions on Islam, even though that they ask, like, they probably be as much religious, but they have different interpretations of uh, issues like abortion or issues like uh, interest and so on. You want to take I didn't fully understand the question. Can you repeat sorry. the beginning of the question? Just summarize the question. Yeah, how do you see um, the effect of the like, material relationship? So, like, be it gender or um, relationship to the economy, uh, class, um, age even, how it affects different people, uh, different Muslims' opinion uh, on Islamic on Islam, so on issues like abortion, interest, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, it's a very broad question, as I understand. Thank you. If you want me to narrow to abortion and interest and how it's seen. Well, one thing is that when we're speaking of the Islamic world, we're speaking of a very diverse geography with very different social settings. 
like more than 70% of Afghans think that apostates should be killed. When you go to Bosnia-Herzegovina, it's 0.2% of people who think like that. It's an incredible diversity there in the first place. So in some societies, Sharia, Islamic law is influent, it's imposed by state. In some societies, it's very limited and it plays a role only in family law. In countries like Turkey, Albania, Bosnia, it's a total secular law. So it's a huge place. So Islamic law has more effect somewhere. In, in some places, it doesn't have any effect at all. On abortion, I can say generally Islamic view is negative. I mean, M Muslim scholars think that abortion is not a good thing because there's a life there and it's given by God. But I should also tell you that some Islamic scholars have said, they've discussed when does the life begin exactly. And some say it's contra by it's the conception as main Catholics maybe would say. But others said after when the fetus takes a form, and so the, some Islamic scholars have allowed it in the first three months. There are interpretations like that when it comes to abortion as well. Generally, I find Islamic position to abortion a bit closer to Judaism than Christianity in Senegal. I've been in a meeting with Jew Jewish and Islamic and Christian scholars almost a decade ago. I found Jewish and Islamic sources very close, as in most issues like Judaism and Islam. I think on similar on theology and jurisprudence and all that. Uh, and you ask also abortion and... Gender issues? Gen well, let's ask the Islamic feminists. I mean, gender issues is huge. And again, the life of a Muslim woman in Afghanistan is not the same thing as the life of a woman in Tunisia or Albania or Turkey. It's very diverse. So, And one more thing. What oppresses women in the Muslim world sometimes can be bigoted, like let's say archaic interpretations of religion. Sometimes it's male machismo, you know, it's like male domination. And the Islamic feminists are actually trying to rid Islam from that kind of misogyny that they see in Islamic sources, but not the Quran, the core of the religion. So it's interesting you mention abortion because um, I've spent a lot of time, years of my life really hanging out with Islamists, um, activists and leaders, um, mainstream Islamists, not the, not the ISIS types. Um, and I, I'm trying to think now whether abortion has ever come up in one of my interviews. And this is like hundreds of hours of interviews. Uh, abortion maybe has never come up or once, once or twice over the course of the last 10 years of my life. It's really striking how little of an issue abortion is in, in, in these societies. Now, you could argue part of it is because no one's supposed to be having premarital sex, but I don't think that's... Um, I think Islam has a more... Um, has a different approach to abortion than Christianity does, which is why I've always been confused about how, why abortion is such a big issue in the U.S. I can't relate to it. I don't get it. On this issue of education and class, very quickly, um, I, I don't know if this is what you were getting at, but I oftentimes I hear people saying, well, education is the solution, and if people get better educated, they're going to become more liberal. I don't want to say it's the opposite, but you actually see the Islamic revival in the Middle East, which starts in the 70s and then continues onward, it, it coincides with mass educational attainment, with universal education, with more and more Egyptians or Jordanians going to secondary school. And you see that the senior ranks and leaders 
of Islamist movements are of the professional middle class. These are pretty much smart people, at least in the narrow sense. They're engineers, doctors, lawyers, professors, teachers. So this idea that we just have to educate people and they will become less Islamist or more liberal, I think the historical record in the Middle East does not support that at all. We'll take a question in front. I'm Amanda Dean Ahmed. I'm the president of the Minaret of Freedom Institute and the Muslim chaplain at American University. Um, my question is uh, uh, takes off on uh, the observation that uh, it would be surprising if Islam didn't have a political aspect to it, given the prophet role as head of state. <clears throat> the Quran itself has almost no laws in it, just a handful. And so my question to you is, if you're looking for a way to persuade Muslims to become more liberal, rather than focus on the historicization of the harshness of those laws, instead look at what the laws attempt to address. There are punishments for breaking contracts, punishments for theft, punishments for violations Burger. of person and property. Isn't this more important aspect of liberalism than to insist that to be a liberal you have to agree with me on everything? Thank you, Imad. It's great to see a fellow Muslim liberal and a great friend. Uh, again, very few of them are, are there, right? The Minaret of Freedom. You're, you have a very important project going on for many decades. Uh, well, I actually, in my book, Islam Without Extremes, try to do two different things. I, first of all, try to look what, what does the Quran really punish? And the nature of the punishment, corporal versus something else, is a different discussion. Uh, there I argue that there are five crimes, actually, the Quran punishes. Theft, murder, brigandage, adultery, and the false accusation of adultery. So in all of these cases, I argued that there is actually a real crime, like somebody gets hurt, somebody gets violated. Whereas there are other sins according to Quran, but the Quran doesn't bring any punishment. Like you shouldn't gamble or drink or eat pork or you should fast in Ramadan, but the Quran doesn't bring any punishment there. What our brilliant scholars, ulema, did in the Middle Ages was they said, okay, let's use the analogy method, qiyas. So they brought punishments for every other violation. So, so the difference between sin and crime got lost in the Islamic civilization in mainstream. So I'm arguing let's rediscover the difference between sin and crime. Crime is something that hurts somebody else. But sin is your personal disobedience to God. That is not punished by anybody and I think I see that principle within the Quran from that perspective. Of course, this means reform. You'll go against the Shafi, Hanafi scholars who said, but it was their thought. It, it, they thought that by analogy, we can make a pious society by punishing every sin. It's not coming from the Quran. So you have a very valid argument there. Then comes, what are the methods the Quran is using while punishing? These are corporal. And there I would bring the historicist argument saying that, well, in 7th century, you can't give any punishment that is not corporal. I mean, you can't just feed somebody for 30 years, wait outside of the tent under the sun while giving him food and imprisoning him. He'll be luckier than you as if you're his guardian. I mean, it just didn't, prisons did not exist in pre-modern societies, like especially in 7th century Arabia. So there, maybe we can understand the corporalness of the punishment as something historical. But if there's a principle, it is a distinction between sin and crime. Which means Saudis should not, you know, punish people for committing sin, 
but they are doing so. So here's an argument against them. But, but Mustafa, if someone asks you, um, well, why shouldn't the government punish sin? I mean, how how would you really respond to that? Because, I have responses to that. Uh, right, but but if there so so the Quran says that certain things are prohibited, and that there's some aspect of trying to promote a virtuous society then that's 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 the argument you hear from a lot of people. Exactly. How can the government let people commit sin openly or publicly? Because privately, historically, in Islamic law and in the various caliphates, you could pretty you much don't mess do with anything, private you could home do privacy. you wanted in the privacy of your own, own home. And actually, um, there were quite a few caliphs who were quite well known for really being like like very Heavy enthusiastic drinkers, yeah. wine drinkers. And the royal court was flowing with wine. And you also had poetry that was patronized by the- Whether Catholic. wine is really haram or not is being discussed as well, but that's a different discussion. Well, right, so, but, but, but if, we, if, the, if the consensus is yeah. that wine is not permissible, then what, yeah. Okay, you ask a very good question. And that's actually a point I emphasize every time, especially speaking to fellow Muslim audiences. Well, punishing sin doesn't create piety, it creates hypocrisy. You go to Saudi Arabia, every woman is covered, you get on a flight, you come to Istanbul, they wear the miniskirts and go to a bar and get wasted. I mean, too. This happens, so this is a fact of life. So punishing sin doesn't make people pious. Punishing sin makes people hypocritical. And if the, we are caring about the intentions of people behind a religious injunction, we shouldn't do that. We should accept the freedom to sin, as I call it in my book, not because we condone it, but because people have the choice, because it is people's tests in front of God. So that's the argument against that. And I see a lot of Muslims are persuaded by this. They, a lot of pious Muslims in Turkey say, oh yeah, we don't want to live in, we don't want the Saudi religion police to check where we are wearing a hijab or not. We want to wear it on our own. So that argument is persuasive to a lot of conservative Muslims. But what about things that have a social effect? Because that would certainly apply to... Everything has a social effect. Not wearing a hijab has a social effect. Oh, not every woman is covered. They will tend to say we should ban things that are harmful to youth, like alcohol, people get drunker. But then it becomes a different argument. I mean, the Norwegians or the Swedes have similar limitations on alcohol with similar arguments, like people get alcoholic, you should limit the sales and so on. It, it happens, but it becomes a different argument. The question is, should you really punish sin as such? And I'm arguing that you should not, and I see a lot of Muslims who say this makes sense and there's a ground for it. Take a question in the back, please. Well, you, why don't we take two questions? The, the, two, the two of you, yes. You and you, and then we'll answer both questions. Hi, I'm Molly Lynn Westray with the State Department. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, kind of compare. Sorry, we can't hear you very well, maybe a little louder. Sorry, Sorry. Oh, that's really loud. Um, I was wondering if you could discuss um, the, Re the reformation of Christianity. Um, in light of how I, I've heard the argument that the, the biggest problem with um, liberalization of Islam is that Islam has never undergone a reformation as Christianity did. Is, is, is that a, a possibility or, I mean, could you speak to that, that area? Sure. Sure. Okay, uh, my name is Aisha Bilal and I'm from Pakistan. I just had a quick comment and a question. Uh, my comment is that um, when you were talking about uh, liberty and uh, democracy, uh, I feel that uh, 
while democracy is obviously very important and uh, should be implemented, liberty is more important because it also protects the rights of the deviants within the majority. Because like we said, we all agree that they are not like the signal interpretation of Islam. And so many of the things that are, uh, they're basically culturally motivated. So uh, I would say individual liberty is more important. I can, you know, what you have to say about that. And secondly, if we uh, truly understand Islam, wouldn't you say that, um, I mean, I asked both of you, that um, wouldn't you say that in, uh, in, in itself it is a liberal religion? Because um, if you've uh, read like Surah Kafrun, it says you have your religion, I have my religion, you have like the freedom of practicing it. But once you enter into a contract, just like you are entering into uh, a contract for a marriage, you kind of like agree with certain terms and conditions with God. And he's the one who's going to deal with it if you uh, like deviate from it. And as liberals, we all agree offer for a rule of law, right? So, I mean... The, the 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 punishments uh, like like uh, gentlemen over there also said the punishments in Islam that are there are also the same similar punishment the liberals would give to anyone who deviates uh, in terms of you know contract enforcement in terms of uh, adultery or you know uh, things like that so I think uh, uh, what would you say about that isn't Islam already a liberal religion in that sense thank you sure should we answer you too First of all, thank you for reminding the Reformation argument. It's an argument that I don't agree with because, I mean, Reformation had its own contribution to Christendom, European history. But we are not in a position that we need a Reformation like Martin Luther. I mean, Reformation was a battle cry against the centralized authority of the Catholic Church. We don't have that at all, actually. We have a very decentralized Islamic world. And the Reformation didn't necessarily bring liberalism, you know, it brought people being burned at the stakes for being heretical Protestants by the non-heretical Protestants and a lot of conflicts. Ultimately, what we need, that's what, that, I don't compare Islam to Christianity. That's always, I think, a false start. There are different religions. Shadi makes that point very well. I compare Islam to Judaism. That's why I refer to Jewish Haskalah, the Enlightenment. And when I, today, the overwhelming majority of the Jews, whether they're secular or reformed Jews or modern Orthodox, they don't think that the penal code of the halakha is not something that you should implement anymore. Like you shouldn't stone women to death, really. Uh, well, some Muslims think that the penal code of the Sharia has to be implemented. So how, if one, there was an evolution from there in Judaism, can we have an evolution in Islam? And it's, of course, a bigger question. Muslims have states and a lot of differences. But I think comparing Islam to Christianity and Christian history generally gives us a you know, wrong, wrong like a comparison. Uh, to come, isn't Islam already a liberal religion? Well, liberal is a modern term. And I don't, I'm not going to say you know, Prophet Muhammad established a liberal state. I mean, that would be anachronistic. That would be wrong. What I would say, though, and there I agree with you, that there are... Uh, there are verses in the Quran that really we can use today as a basis for defending human liberty. There are verses which really seem to indicate free freedom of religion. Let there be no compulsion in religion. Although the Saudis put a parenthesis into that, limiting you know the liberalism <laughs> it's giving. Uh, I mean, they put a parenthesis, let there be no compulsion in religion. They put a parenthesis, let there be no compulsion in the acceptance of religion. Because they think that you're not forced to enter Islam, but once you enter, you can't leave, and you have to do everything, and the religious police will control you. So they put that. So there are verses in the Quran which was 
overlooked by the tradition, which was abrogated by scholars who preferred more, you know, belligerent verses. They are there, and there are these are the sources that we can use today. Based on that, I can say the Quran values human freedom. And the, the system, the political philosophy in the modern era to defend human freedom is liberalism. And that's why I am a Muslim liberal. So uh, just to kind of piggyback on, on Mustafa, so I also um, have major issues with Reformation arguments for many of the reasons he mentioned. But if you insist on Reformation analogies, I would, I would argue that Islam has already had its Reformation but it has led to outcomes which people in this room probably wouldn't like. I mean, the closest thing to a Reformation movement in Islam is Islamism. Islamism didn't exist in the pre-modern era. Um, Islamism derives from the Islamic modernists of the late 19th, late 19th and early 20th century who were very self-consciously rationalist. They talked about reason all the time. If you read Rashid Ridas, one of the kind of founding fathers of Islamism, he's obsessed with rationalism as being the way to, to proceed, essentially. Um, that's a long conversation of how, how, why or how Islamism comes from rationalist, a rationalist orientation. But I think that it's sort, of, it's sort of one of these things, be careful what you wish for. And some of my, some friends take this a little bit further. Graham Wood, the author of uh, the new ISIS book, but also the What ISIS Really Wants article in the Atlantic. I was on a panel with him once and he actually said that he thinks ISIS is an example of a reformation. So, because uh, reformations are essentially about reacting to things that, that come before and kind of taking on uh, a very new and some, in some cases radical approach. So these are all modernist movements, whether it's ISIS or the Brotherhood, across the whole spectrum of Islamism. These are movements that, in my view, couldn't have existed five centuries ago or six centuries ago. Whereas I make a different analogy, I compare them to zealots in first century Judea fighting against Roman rule to establish theocracy, which was one picture in the big Jewish picture uh, in first century. That's in my second book, Islam, yeah. uh, The Islamic <laughs> Jesus. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time, and I'm sure that this debate is going to go on and on for, for quite a while. Thank you all for coming, and please join me in thanking the, the two excellent speakers today.